Welcome to the Mocha SMC podcast. I'm Aisha. And I'm Hera. And we are the Mocha SMCs. We also want to say hello to our pod. Hi, pod. (laughs) All right. So we are two single black single mothers by choice who are working to unpack all of the things surrounding this non-traditional path. And in this episode, we're going to dip a little into the medical side of being an SMC, um, specifically discussing some of the things that could potentially go wrong based on our experience. Again, um, I want to state up front that we are not doctors and we always recommend that you do your own research and you speak with a medical professional before making any decisions. Okay, so (laughs) we're going to ease into this kind of going from the beginning of the process um, all the way toward the end, Um, starting with, so you want to get yourself knocked up. Okay, so you decide that you want to get pregnant on your own. And the assumption is that, you know, we're young, we're fertile, we don't have any fertility issues. Our only fertility issue is that we don't have a partner to provide the sperm. All right, so, so cool. A reputable clinic will start you off by running um, some blood work, doing some initial diagnostics, um, and (laughs) examining your innards. Um, (laughs) Make you feel like a lab rat. I know. know, And then you get get introduced to the scope, you know, that internal probe. Um, But I guess you should also say that not, it's also your choice, like how invasive you want them to get as well. Right, right, right. Um, and so uh, you're going to hear things like once you're into the SMC space, you're going to hear things like get your three day blood work done. You know, are you going to have a S, uh, an HSG? Like what's your AMH? Um, so all of these are indicators Um, external indicators of fertility. Um, We won't know how you respond until you start trying, but your day three blood work is pretty much you go get a blood draw and they're checking your hormone levels um, to see um, if you are ready to proceed um, with your um, your cycle. Um, AMH is going to tell you um, the health of um, your your ovaries. Follicle counts are going to tell you how many dormant follicles you have, and an HSG is just going to tell you how 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 clear your your internal uterine fallopian tube environment is. Um, and so you, as Harris said, you get to determine um, to what extent you're going to um, take on any of these diagnostics. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, from my own personal opinion is that if you're going to to put down the amount of money that you're putting down for some of these procedures, you want to give yourself the best first um, chance that you can because, um, so yeah, so it's balancing uh, cost with maximizing each try. I think um, it's also like, um, you know, there's, there's several factors that at least my first doctor considered when we talked about testing and I was fairly young and I had also uh, already had a live birth. And so mm-hmm. he was like, you know, chances are tubes are clear. <laughs> it worked the first time. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, and also my financial situation at that time, I chose to limit testing. You know, I certainly had blood work done and things like that, but the more invasive testing I opted out of Mm -hmm. um, both times, because by the time I was having my second daughter by SMC, you know, I had already had a live birth. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, it it is a balance. Like, let's say you try for a couple of months and it doesn't work, you know, that may indicate that you you need some more invasive testing. 
Yeah. And so for me, since I was a, a total novice, they gave me a checklist. I'm checking items off the list. HSG, day three blood work, you know, go to the corner, buy coffee. So I was just like, <laughs> yeah. And so what I found through my diagnostics is that I had um, a fibroid and I, I'd known that I'd had a couple of small fibroids, um, but I had one that was pushing up against the uterine wall and that could potentially negatively impact um, an embryo implanting. And so um, first thing I knew I needed to do was to get that fibroid removed. Um, and so that was my um, probably my second um, invasive procedure because I had the HSG that showed mm -hmm. that, you know, I had the fibroid. And so I got the fibroid removed before I proceeded um, further uh, with my first pregnancy. Um, and then also during my second um, pregnancy, the workup, oh, I was a disaster then. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had um, had a miscarriage already. I had, you know, retained um, placental tissue, which caused, you know, just a catastrophic um, cascade of events. Um, and so for those of you who, who don't know, when you're pregnant, there are a few different systems that are involved in the pregnancy, right? There's the endocrine system, which are all of the, the hormones, pituitary gland, you know, um, the uh, diabetes, what is it? <laughs> Um, insulin, you know, all of those, all of those things get triggered, your immune system. And pretty much all of those came into play with my second pregnancy. They played a big role. Like after having a number of miscarriages, I, I slipped into a pre-diabetic, a silently slipped into a pre-diabetic um, stage where having uncontrolled diabetes could negatively impact a pregnancy. Um, I also had an immune response with uh, the delivery of my first daughter, which I did not know of that caused a lot of catastrophic events and miscarriages um, along my journey. And so we'll get into that. Um, um, how about you, Hera? Anything like what unexpected happened? So, I guess like, I mean, I will say again, and I will probably continue to say I hated every second of pregnancy. Um, I, I love my kids, but I, I just, I think for me, the whole thing was hard because I don't, I don't like feeling out of control with my body. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it literally felt each time like a little alien child was taking over my body and I had no control. I was like vomiting uncontrollably. I had, um, you know, really bad sciatica. And, uh, I think the thing, the thing that I will say, um, because I, because I, I just didn't like how I was feeling and I was like, I'm very in tune with how I typically feel. And so everything just sort of weighed in on me, like, oh my gosh, here's this thing new. Right. I remember, um, feeling like, oh my gosh, I wonder if my doctor is going to think that I am just like paranoid or a hypochondriac. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that you should always have a, you should have a relationship with your doctor where your doctor encourages you to tell her everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you ever feel like you have a doctor that's making you feel weird for doing that, you need to switch doctors. Um, because I will say like, it was, in my, in my first pregnancy, I remember feeling really itchy. Like I just woke up in the middle of the night and was just like, my palms were itchy. My feet were itchy. And I was just like, I almost just, I felt like I was breaking out into a rash, but there was no rash. And I felt really weird talking to my daughter, doctor about it because I was like, this 
this maybe I'm like allergic to my sheets, right? Like, so I'm all like Google diagnosing myself and I'm like, oh, this is totally like, I'm really, you know, I'm just, I need to change my shampoo. And so when I mentioned it to my doctor, sort of like on the side, I was like, yeah, it's weird. Like my hands are itchy. She like suddenly got concerned mm -hmm. and she was like, we should do a blood test. And it turned out that I had cholestasis, which is um, a, a condition um, that is, I think, relatively rare, but in certain communities, it can be higher. Um, and it's basically where your liver enzymes get out of whack during pregnancy. And really, the only thing that fixes it is delivering the baby, right? Mm -hmm. um, and depending on how early you get it in pregnancy, uh, like if you're if you catch it late in pregnancy, they'll just deliver the baby. And the risk is that if you if it goes left untreated or unmonitored, uh, you could end up with a stillborn situation. So it's pretty serious. Wow. Um, uh, luckily with my daughter, with my first daughter, I didn't have it, um, but they were still monitoring me for it because once you've had it, you you know, have it more, more prone mm -hmm. to having it. And if you have relatives who have had it. And so with my youngest daughter, I actually got diagnosed when I was 20 weeks, which is like horrible because it was 20 weeks of like, just it's uncomfortable. And you literally, your body just feels like it's on fire mm -hmm. all the time. And, um, there are meds you can take, but they don't really help with the symptoms. They just sort of help keep your levels in check. So that it doesn't harm the baby. Right. And it also means that like multiple times a week, you have to go and get sonograms and like do, you know, checking the heartbeat, which is just like very, um, very, uh, you know, it's emotionally challenging because you're just constantly, um, worried about something happening. Right. Like, uh, and so I will say though, that like having had that experience, I will just constantly stress to women, like always have a good communication with your doctor. And it, if, if something happens in the middle of the night, like, don't worry about disturbing this person. It's their job. Yeah. So my, I, with both of my pregnancies, I had um, a challenge. So with my first pregnancy, it was, you know, fairly textbook until the delivery. Um, and my daughter was delivered strongly jaundiced. Um, and so they ran some tests and they found that she had hemolytic uh, disease of the newborn, which basically means that my immune system attacked her blood. Um, oh, and wow. so, yeah, so she spent a good week in the hospital. She was under, you know, five UV lights naked, you know, just to kind of process out the bilirubin um, that built up and was giving her the yellow coloring. And so what I didn't know at the time and what I strongly suspect is that because my immune system was activated during that pregnancy, that I maintained antibodies against my daughter's type A blood um, and I'm type O. And so when I went to try for my second daughter, I think I said, I stated in an earlier episode that I had to switch donor sperm, but I didn't know at the time. And so when I was trying for my, my second, I used the same donor that I used for my daughter, which is had type AB blood and I'm type O. So being a biologist and knowing what I know now, I needed to not have any type A embryos implant because they were, they were, they, they would not survive. So my first miscarriage was with my first IVF and my attempt for my second daughter. 
Um, and I miscarried at eight and a half weeks, um, which was devastating. And as a result of that, that pregnancy, uh, I um, miscarried naturally, but I also ma- maintained a bit of placenta, which caused me to continue to bleed periodically, probably for like a few weeks. Um, and so this is where choosing the right fertility clinic comes into play, because my fertility clinic dropped the ball in terms of communicating with me, because they have to track you and monitor your HCG levels until they get down to zero. Um, And so they had stopped reaching out to me, I had stopped reaching out to them. And so then I didn't realize I had retained um, placenta, placental tissue. And so I was so devastated over the entire experience. This was the real low point in my um, trying to conceive. And I needed to find um, a fertility clinic that was gentle in their approach to how they handled their patients. And so I found an off the beaten track um, fertility clinic. This um, woman was about to retire and she's like, I'll take you on as a, as a, um, a client. And she let me talk. We did talk therapy. She ran tests and she found that I had retained um, placenta tissue. So she tracked mm-hmm. my HCG down and she was just like, you, you need to go and get um, a scraping, a DNC. And so she was like, I can't do that. You have to go back to your original clinic. So I was in limbo for a while, but she advocated the hell for me. She mm-hmm. wrote to that, um, my um, previous doctor, she's like, you need to fix this. This is your problem. You need to correct this. And they were like, well, they don't know if it's their pregnancy. And so she was just like, no, you need to fix this. She came to me on this, you know, this day blah, blah, blah. And so she advocated the hell for me. Eventually, I, you know, I went to my own OBGYN who I had a relationship with. They did a DNC, you know, they ran the genetic testing was a genetically normal girl. Um, And so yeah, so that was my experience. So I had tried a couple more times with the same donor. And I was just like, I, I need to switch clinics, I need to, you know, I need to change donor sperm. So I changed donor sperm. And I intentionally looked for a donor because I suspected what was going on. But nobody else would um, put any weight in mm-hmm. immunity aspects of um, trying to conceive. And so I So I think that's, you bring up an interesting point. Like I think, you know, many women have the question of like, what should, what sort of questions should I ask when I Mm -hmm. first go into my fertility clinic? And so, you know, based on Aisha's experience and what she's saying about like the, the blood choice and stuff, I think before you even choose a donor, there are some questions that you could ask your fertility doctor. And I think one of them would be, you know, blood typing, um, uh, there's the, the CM, is it CMV aspect? Uh-huh, CMV. Um, uh-huh. And then there's also, so they'll test you to see if you are CMV positive or negative and it impacts, um, you have to make sure that you, you know, choose a donor that is, you know, the same CMV negative status. if you're negative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, uh, there's a lot of like genetic testing that they should be doing on you. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, you know, you should know whether or not you are a carrier of the sickle cell gene or any other gene that is recessive, but if mixed with somebody who also has it can lead to um, a, a pretty debilitating and painful disease for your child. So mm-hmm. these are things that you would expect um, a fertility clinic to discuss, but if they don't, you should come armed with questions. Right. And then also be aware that I think this is changing that a lot of the fertility industry 
does not give weight to the immunity aspects of pregnancy. And so in the African-American community, we, we do have um, occurrences of autoimmune um, diseases. And so if you are um, dealing with an autoimmune disease, I would probably ask your um, reproductive endocrinologist specific questions with how, how much weight and how do they handle um, the autoimmune aspects, right? Because um, we're coming up to, you know, if you are not getting pregnant, what could possibly go wrong? Um, but before I hop to that, I did end up being successful with switching to a donor that had my blood type. I ended up having um, a beautiful baby girl on the first try um, with that donor. And so it by me advocating for myself it, and having um, a medical provider external who advocated for me, I ended up achieving success. But so you're trying to get pregnant and it's not happening, what could possibly be going wrong? All right, so there are a few things that you want to look at. So you're, you're, you're fairly healthy, you, nothing showed up on your um, fertility diagnostics in terms of you know, needing to be fixed. So there's the egg sperm aspect. So something could either be wrong with your eggs. You um, could be an older mom who's trying. Um, there could be an issue with the sperm. It could be mm -hmm. low, low motility. Um, you know, yeah, it could just not be high quality sperm. And so mm -hmm. um, you can actually, when you choose your um, sperm donor, when you go to do an IUI, your doctor is going to give you some stats um, on your sperm, the motility, the count. Um, some of us are type A people. So we jot all of this down. Um, cause knowledge it's is also power. important that if your doctor says there's, there's, um, there's a threshold where if it's lower than a certain amount, they won't actually do the procedure. Um, or, or they'll just say like, you know, the chances are lower and you can actually, um, go back to the sperm bank and report this, especially if you have like, um, documentation. And in some cases, if it's low enough, um, you can actually get a replacement or, um, a refund. Mm -hmm. Good point. Good point. Um, so you got the egg and sperm. So once the egg and sperm meet up, you know, do they meet up? Do they fertilize? Um, so that's another aspect. Um, implantation. So now that the embryo is created, um, how well does it implant or adhere to your uterus? And then how, then there's the embryonic development. So is the embryo a normal embryo causing it to um, develop normally? So any one of these um, these elements of um, fertility could impact your success factors or could be a reason why you are not getting pregnant. And you can kind of like pick these apart. You're a reputable um, reproductive endocrinologist will have that conversation with you and talk about different things that you can try. Um, I know I, I tried some experimental things um, with my successful cycle. Like I tried an HCG wash. I tried a, a, a uterine scratch. Um, uh -huh. So I have a funny story about this. So when I had my second daughter, I was, uh, I was 37 when I was trying, I ended up, I was 38 when I had her. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm older and like my fertility situation has changed. So like, I'm going to see if I can give myself the best chance of success. So I tried acupuncture. Now, let me tell you, some people say it's relaxing. I felt like it was a torture device. No. I was sitting on the table and like having like a hundred needles in you. I felt like I was getting a hundred shots and maybe I'm just like a super high strung person, which I will mm -hmm. fully admit, but like, 
I, I was sitting there like crying on the table. I was like, this is so painful. And you have to like sit there still. And if you move at all, like it hurts even more. So I did it once. And then I was just like done with this. Uh-huh. Um, I can't say whether or not it worked because like I got pregnant doing IVF the first time. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, maybe it was because of the acupuncture, but like anyone who is not a needle person just don't try it because it's just painful and How horrible. How can you not be a needle person after IVF? Like I was nothing well, I told needles. you. I, know, I felt I like I had been I was jumped out of a gang during IVF. Like it was a horrible experience. My stomach still has like red marks from IVF and I I mean I I still have the the picture of my stomach that uh-huh. I I feel like I I'll put that on the Instagram page so everybody just just has a vision of how effing terrible this was because my entire stomach was black and blue. It just, it really looked, it really looked a mess. Um, But yeah, that was hard. I mean, I fully embrace the fact that one day I'm going to have this conversation with my kid. Like first, first time they act up, I'm going to be like, you know what I went through with you for you. And I'm going to show them them that bruised picture and be like, I went through this much IVF and you know, those needles hurt. (laughs) So look, look, I did my, my final clinic that I went to was like a spa. So they had like, you know, a whole like pre-package, pre, um, pre-transfer package. And so, yeah, I did all of that. See, <laughs> I am like, I am unapologetically bougie. So uh-huh. I should have found myself a place like that. Instead, I was like sitting on the torturous table, like full of needles and, uh, it's just, just terrible. Um, all right. So, so you're pregnant. Right. That that's all. That's what we we all get to, Woo-hoo. you know, that 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 BFP, that big fat pregnancy that, you, you know, on like 100 sticks <laughs> and you and you got your reward. <laughs> you're past the um, first trimester. You're glowing. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, OK, so like I think I think we should acknowledge the fact that this is stressful, right? The whole process of getting pregnant is stressful, especially, you know, many of us come to this just not like assuming that we're not going to have problems with getting pregnant. And then when we find out we do, or like it's not going this planned, um, I would recommend getting a therapist, right? Because I mean, I think one thing that is really challenging is that going through this alone without a partner, um, you know, there's only so much like emotional bleeding your family and friends can take. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes it's really great to just have somebody to talk to because like your doctor's job is to be your doctor. Right. And even though like you definitely want a doctor that's going to be very, um, you know, have, have a very high EQ and be able to sort of handle all of the emotions. Um, I would certainly recommend also getting a therapist because um, it is a hard time. And I know for me, like in the what could possibly go wrong, in addition to the cholestasis, I always gained an exorbitant amount of weight with my kids. And it was hard because I'm I'm an athlete and I like running and like, you know, (laughs) when you're like 50 pounds heavier than you normally are, I mean, it's a lot of weight to carry on your body. So just psychologically, it can be really challenging. So I will say for me, um, I agree with everything that Harris said. I spread the anxiety out amongst my village. (laughs) 
Um, and so I will say my, my second pregnancy, it was hard um, uh, conceiving. Um, and then the second trimester, first trimester was fine. You know, everything was a breeze. I hit my 30, my 28 week checkup, 30 week checkup, where they got concerned that the baby looked small. And so they were like, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. We'll check you in your next four week checkup and we'll see where the baby is, you know, and hopefully she recovered, but she did not. And so that was a devastating visit because they immediately um, made an appointment for me with the maternal fetal specialist, the MFM. And um, when I went to that appointment at probably 36 weeks, they thought that the complication would lead to microcephaly. Um, and if you're familiar with the Zika stories, um, that means a small, uh, 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 obviously small head size. And so, Unfortunately, they couldn't make the diagnosis through, um, you know, pre-delivery um, mechanisms. So I would have had to wait. I had to wait until my daughter was delivered in order for them to make a final diagnosis. Um, so that was challenging. And so I, I, I absorbed that. <laughs> I leaned on my village to kind of get me through that period. And I, I mean, that day... I cried and I cried, but I had to be done by five o'clock because I had to pick up my big girl. Um, and so I made the decision in that moment after I cried my tears, I was like, I can't do anything now. I'm not going to allow my joy to be stolen. I'm going to love this baby. And, you know, I wasn't prepared for the prospect of having a special needs child, but God gave her to me. And so I was going to do my best to, to, to be that child's mom. Now, thankfully my baby was born with a big giant head. Um, she was, she was small. She was five pounds, 12 ounces, um, compared to seven pounds, 12 ounces for her sister, but she, she recovered that weight and then some in two weeks. And so she's, um, thankfully a very healthy vocal, um, um, rambunctious little girl. And so, but those are just some of the things that can go wrong. So, so oh, I will add, like, I think one of the, one of the additional layers to this is that if you are trying for number two, keep in mind that some things are actually harder because like pregnancy in itself is harder. But then like, if you add a potentially toddler running around at the same time, um, and like Aisha said, like, you can't, you can't, be in your own emotions, but too long when you have this person that needs you. Um, and any sort of medical issue that you might be having, um, like with, with my, with my, with my younger daughter, um, I, I actually, um, when I was pregnant with her, I, I fainted due to heat exhaustion and, um, dehydration and just like completely blacked out and had to go to the hospital. And it was terrifying for both myself and my daughter, who my older daughter who was watching. And I had to like in that moment find someone to take her, right? Because I literally, and then I, I got a concussion and like for a week was like completely out of it. Um, and so those are the types of considerations. Like I think when you're, I think no matter what stage you are in, like whether you're having your first or you're having your second, um, you know, make sure that you have a person, like an emergency contact who is aware and willing to drop whatever it takes, right, to come help you. 
So Hera, what advice would you give then um, for new Mocha SNCs who are entering into this space and um, would possibly have to at some point advocate for themselves? So I think, you know, self-advocating is is really important for everyone. But I think specifically as Black women, um, you know, it, it's it's extra important because uh, when you go to the hospital, they're not always looking out for us, right? Like, let's just be honest. Right. What are the, um, what are the, what are the stats? Like, Black women are, what, three times more likely to die from complications due to, to birth mm-hmm. um, or post-birth um, situations than um, any other ethnic group? Yeah. Right? And, like, I think, so, I mean, f- for me, what was really important is you know, when you're thinking about your birth plan, like you don't have a spouse that's going to be there with you and advocating. Right. And, and yeah, you can advocate for yourself, but to a point, because like you may be in a situation during childbirth that you are not able to advocate for yourself. Right. So my advice would be choose your birth partner wisely, right? Like who are you going to bring to the hospital? So uh, true story for me, I chose my mom. My mom is a fierce white lady. People listen to her. <laughs> uh, and um, it she actually came through multiple times because, you know, I experienced the same thing where like, I was like, hey, I think this baby's coming. And the nurse was like, no, 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 you're fine. Take a nap. And I was like, no, I think this baby's coming. And my fierce white mom ran out into the hallway and she's like, someone's got to listen to my daughter. And next thing you know, baby's head is like coming out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I, I chose someone that I knew was going to have the confidence to just keep pushing. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to have, have a white woman who was willing to push and, and I guess had the, had the privilege to people have listened to her. Um, so that worked out really well. Um, but I will say that like, you know, also get a second opinion, right? If you don't feel like you're being listened to go find someone else. So for me, I would I would recommend the advice that I would give is that advocating for yourself starts at step negative one, right? The moment you know that you're going to totally. be doing this on your own, you start evaluating your medical team. Like, mm-hmm. how do you like your OBGYN? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you like your reproductive endocrinologist when you get one? How how are they at listening to your concerns and giving you space to, to express those concerns? Do they make you feel comfortable? Mm-hmm. I would recommend um, that you use your entire appointment time. Mm-hmm. If they say, do you have questions? I have questions. Even stuff that come up in the moment have questions. Um, do you have any concerns? Like, I know when I was worried about my daughter's size, I let my medical team know I'm concerned. I cried. I'm not this strong black woman. I am concerned. I am vulnerable. I cannot go home without a baby. We both me and the baby need to come back home alive because I have a I have a five-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. And so I made sure that my medical team knew my situation so that when it came time for delivery, they talked Mm -hmm. it over with me. My OB was like, look, this baby is not coming as fast as we'd like her to. We want to try this other med. The other Mm -hmm. option is a C-section, but I don't want to give you a C-section and send you home to recover with a five-year-old at home. 
and a newborn. Mm -hmm. So we're going to try this new med. Are you okay with that? We talked through some of the, um, Mm -hmm. the implications and we moved ahead with the additional medication and it worked. So you start interviewing your medical team fairly early on so that you Mm -hmm. know if they are there for you. You need to let them know you're going to partner with them because you're an SMC. You're going to partner with them. They should know your home situation. Um, And then also, as Harris said, your village. Mm -hmm. Make sure your village is out for you and advocating for you in the delivery room. So I will also mention, I know that this isn't necessarily, you know, this isn't always an option. Uh, But for me, uh, I have been very intentional about choosing black doctors. Um, a black doctor delivered my first daughter. Um, it wasn't an option with my second daughter, but uh, I also intentionally moved to a blacker city and found a black pediatrician. And the reason I did that is that, you know, stats stats show that we are more likely to have complications. Um, but I think it's not, it's not, reduced to um, just, it's not, it's not just in pregnancy where we see this disparity. And there's also a lot of stats behind people of color, black people faring better when they have black doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we can all hypothesize about why that is. I think those of us in the black community understand uh, Mm -hmm. the very obvious reasons that that occurs. Um, But I will say that personally for me, um, I have felt very comfortable. I love our pediatrician. I, there's things that I don't have to explain to her. Um, there are lots of, you know, there are lots of amazing white doctors out there as well. But just for me personally, um, I have been intentional about choosing black ones. All right. Well, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this discussion um, and that we've given you some insight into the complications that could potentially arise, tips for how you can advocate for yourself um, in this episode. Um, if you're looking for more information on stats and resources, you can check us out on our um, website at mochasmc.com. Um, so to that, we thank you for joining us this week. If you like what you heard, please share it with your social media circle. Um, tell your grandma, tell your mama, tell your friends, tell your coworkers. Tell um, follow, <laughs> <laughs> follow us on Twitter at Mocha SMC. Visit our website. And for now, we say goodbye. And we are the Mocha SNCs.